Another busy day in the channel and migrant numbers look set to top 10,000 people that have come via that route this year. I'll be asking you, is there any solution to this? I'll also be talking a little bit about the RNLI and their hidden secret. And Laura Dodsworth is going to join me on Talking Pines. She's written a book called A State of Fear. It's about the British public and attitudes towards COVID and it is a bestseller. Well, no surprise, uh, calm conditions and a very, very, very busy day. A large number of people coming in to Dover this morning uh, and we can see footage. Uh, there is Hurricane, one of the Border Force vessels, absolutely rammed, as you can see, with people that have been picked up in the middle of the channel. Calm conditions in the channel. And I am told on good authority that the number, and by the way, the number yesterday was 281. 281 people crossed the channel yesterday uh, and are now in care in this country. I'm told on good authority the number today will be over 400. Whether it's over 430, the previous record remains to be seen. But it's going to be another massive number. And it is significant because this issue is rising up the agenda in terms of the concerns of Conservative voters. And one odd thing that happened today was the French were escorting boats across the channel today and normally they get them to the line and yet for some reason a French warship seemed to spend a fair amount of time in British waters today and you can see the map there you can see the coordinates I don't have an explanation for why that boat came right into British waters but it could be it could be that border force was so completely overwhelmed this morning that every vessel they had was out and perhaps there was no one for the French Navy to hand over to at the line, so they escorted the boat into British waters. Isn't that nice of them? Uh, and so much so, so busy were Border Force that, of course, they once again had to rely on the volunteer crews of the RNLI, and there were five separate lifeboat crews from Kent who were out there today picking up migrants, picking up actually quite large numbers of migrants. Um, and we can see here a group uh, that have arrived sitting on the shingle and they've just been brought in by the boat, uh, the lifeboat at Dungeness. So it is a big, big day and people coming from all over the world, people coming from Africa, people coming from Vietnam, people coming from the Middle East. Uh, goodness only knows how much money the criminal gangs make on a day like today. Certainly, it would be hundreds of thousands of pounds today, but it could even run into the millions. And this is becoming a very, very major issue. I've been concerned about it for over a year. I've done my best to try and highlight it, to try and get it talked about. And all we seem to get from the government uh, is just a sort of endless statements of saying it's all going to be solved, but it never, ever is. So I'm asking you tonight, you know, do you see a solution? Is there a solution? Let me know what you think. You can do it by going to gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can also send in your Barrage the Farage questions for the end of the show. And on a slightly lighter note, it's called the Border Force. But in Dover Harbour this morning, it became the Border Farce. There is a broken down Border Force vessel being towed by another Border Force vessel with a migrant boat behind it. That is a pretty farcical scene that we saw in Dover this morning. But it is a serious issue and it is run by criminal gangs. And I honestly wonder 
where many of these people who come into the UK, no doubt thinking that it is a land of milk and honey, and perhaps to begin with it is, perhaps being put into a four-star hotel, getting three meals a day, getting access to dentists, to doctors, getting £38 a week pocket money to spend, it probably is, for many people, a very good start. But in the end, I suspect many of them finish up in the illegal economy, effectively working as modern-day slaves, and it's something we hardly ever have a debate about. Well, joining me now to discuss all of this is Neil Giles, Chief Executive of Stop the Traffic, which works to prevent human trafficking globally by using special intelligence. So please, Neil, uh, tell me, is there a solution to all of this? And, and are we right to characterise this as being a criminal operation? Well, certainly, um, it's, uh, it's a market. It's a criminal market. Um, and there are significant overlaps um, between what you're seeing um, uh, coming across the channel and what are my expertise area, which is the trafficking and exploitation of, of people. Um, both groups, in my view, set out with a sense that this is going to be a great journey. This is going to be a journey to something much better for them. Um, and for many, maybe, maybe that's the truth. Um, but many of them incur enormous debts to the criminal gangs to come here. They're either uh, via their family or, or directly, and they have to work those off. Um, so I think you're right to a degree. There, there is a journey to an exploitative future for a proportion of these people. I think in, in terms of a solution, we still are, need to learn more, but we need to understand that it is a market. Um, and there are some market fundamentals. Um, the, these markets need to recruit um, people to go on this journey. And sometimes that's a lot further away than the coast of France. Um, so I think understanding from survivor narratives where they, where they first were approached and encouraged to go on this journey, um, that, that's, that, that's a plot to communicate, to undermine the lie, the deceit that's practised upon and, of course, social um, media course plays quite a about... role in this, doesn't it? I mean, there's sort of adverts going out on TikTok or whatever it is saying, hey, this is easy, uh, you can get to England, please contact us. I mean, social media firms don't seem... I mean, I could be wrong, please tell me I am, but social media firms don't seem to have done much to have stopped this. Well, uh, there, is, uh, there is work going on with social media um, firms, um, particularly with my mother organisation, which is Stop the Traffic. I, I'm the chief executive of a daughter charity called Traffic Analysis Hub. We're a, a data exercise. We're the biggest repository of stories of human trafficking from around the globe. Um, uh, and uh, the idea is that you draw insights and analysis from those survivor narratives in industrial quantities um, and, and that tends to uh, it, it draw you in a certain direction about how you might shape a message, how you might deliver a message that would change the ease with which traffickers uh, and those that run these criminal businesses recruit willing volunteers to go on a very torturous and dangerous journey. Mm. That channel crossing is no picnic. Yeah, and tell me something. I mean, as someone that studies trafficking patterns and, 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 and patterns of exploitation, why do you think it is that about 90% of those who've come in this year, and it looks like the figure will be about... I think tonight we're going we're to go through the 10,000 figure, um, and we're certainly on course to be way, way in excess of 20,000 this year. A lot will depend 
on how much settled weather we get in the next few months. But why is it 90% of these people are men? Um, I, I suspect that there's uh, uh, easier access to work for men in, um, in the grey economy, in the underground economy. Um, that, that's why they go on this journey. Um, uh, and the numbers don't necessarily surprise me. I think um, there's likely to be north of 100,000 people in the UK who are in circumstances, as you and I are talking now, of exploitation, uh, having been uh, trafficked to some point. They may get all the way to care in this country before they realise that they're going to have to work for years to pay a debt off. Um, and, and there is a churn in that process. We think um, that workforce needs replacing by about 20% every year. So um, one in five needs replacing each year. And as somebody that studies this, these things and studies trafficking routes, what can be done to stop this trade? I think two things would be important. Uh, I, I think um, more working together between the not-for-profit sector um, and um, and government policymakers and law enforcement. I think I still think there's ground to gain there. Um, I, I think we all have knowledge to bring to the learning conversation. Um, I, we need to know more about the demand side here. We need to know more about how those markets accommodate um, illicit labour, um, and we need to understand how we can shift that. Um, there clearly is work worked here, um, and, and there, there must be opportunities for us to um, reduce that, op that opportunity for traffickers to place people in jobs. Neil Giles, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, let me ask you, the viewers, is there a solution to this cross-channel trade run by criminal gangs and leading many people, despite the wishes they may have when they come and the short-term comforts they may receive, into full exploitation. Let me know. GBviews GB at gbnews.uk. Now, a change of policy as far as vaccines are concerned. It has been announced that vaccines will be available for 16 and for 17-year-olds. A couple of weeks ago, we thought that wasn't going to be the case. There are some circumstances in which children over 12, if they're very vulnerable, can get jabs. But there's now going to be a push a campaign to try and get 16 and 17 year olds to get the jab, to get the first jab, and then at some point it'll be announced when they're going to get the second jab. And this raises, I think, some quite big questions because we do know that COVID is not especially dangerous to that age group. There are some that will say that the risks of a side effect from the vaccine could even be greater in that age group uh, than the threat of the illness itself. Some people say that. And what I really want to know is if we do vaccinate young people against something that is extremely unlikely to do them harm, what is the benefit? Does that actually really genuinely help stop the spread, potential spread of the virus to the elderly and the vulnerable? And that's what we're going to try now to drill down 
to the bottom of it. Bottom of it. And, and I don't know what the answer is. Let's see if we can find out. So joining me now is Dr. Barrett Pankhania, Senior Clinical Lecturer at the University of Exeter Medical School and former Public Health Consultant in Communicable Diseases. And Dr. Roland Salmond, epididymologist, I got that wrong, and former director of the Communicable Disease Surveillance Centre in Wales. Let's go first to you, Roland, and thank you for joining us here on GB News. There's clearly a big push to get as many 16 and 17-year-olds to have this vaccine. What is the, what is the upside? What is the, you know, the government's view? What is the upside? What is the benefit? of doing this? The short answer to that is, I don't know. I mean, as, as recently as two weeks ago, they were telling us that below 18, they would reserve the vaccination for those at particular risk of serious disease. And as far as I understand, the data hasn't changed in the two weeks since then. I mean, I think Professor Wei Xin Lim was uh, uh, on the media outlets today saying that the risk to benefit ratio remains much the same. So I'm not sure why the JCBI have changed their decision. Um, I think the underlying logic is, as you were suggesting, that the head of this programme is to prevent spread to vulnerable people, and more particularly to prevent spread... I tell you what, we've really got some problems here. I'm sorry, Roland, we've got some problems here with the audio. Um, I'm going to take you down for a second, and we're going to try and get that sorted out. Uh, let's go to Barrett Pankania and hope we've got a better connection. Good evening. Hello, good evening. Thank you for joining us here on GB News. Um, so I'll ask you the same question. What do you see? I, I, I got a sceptical answer from Roland, although it wasn't that easy to hear. Um, do you think there's a benefit in us vaccinating 16 and 17-year-olds? And specifically, does it benefit the 16 and 17-year-olds, or are we looking at benefit for the elderly and the vulnerable? Yes, I'm very happy to answer all your questions, Nigel. And lovely to see my former colleague, uh, Ronald Salmon, also uh, on the panel at the same time. I wasn't aware, but let's answer your questions. So um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus does cause infections in all age groups. The point is that in the younger age groups, it may not cause severe disease. The key point is may. But the point is, yes, young children do get infected and young children as a result of being infected may go on to have uh, long COVID and they may also infect others, meaning generate they more may. cases. Yes. So, so when you uh, say may, you know, and if you, when you say uh, may, I mean, I, this is, this is a, 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 quite a vague word, isn't it, really? Well, yes, but if you let me finish, then I will, I will I'll give you the Fine. full picture. So... So whilst we've been led to believe that young children are not infectious, I disagree. Because if we look at the heat maps generated when the schools reopened last summer, in the last autumn, after the last summer, you notice that the infections start from the younger age groups, then they go on to the older age groups, then the elderly, and so on. So without a doubt, uh, schools are a focus for generating new cases and if you had a immunized population in that arena there a immunized person is less infectious a less infectious person is going to generate 
fewer new cases. Furthermore, a immunized person is also protected. And we there's a two levels of protection here. One, protection from infection. But the other bit is protection from long COVID as well. Because this is an odd infection whereby not only do you get an infection, but you can also, in after your infection, get long COVID. So there are many parameters and many reasons to immunize and immunize extensively. But the biggest potential benefit then is that they will be less infectious in terms of spreading that virus on to people who, even though they've been double jabbed, are elderly or vulnerable. Is that the biggest takeout from this? Well, no, because the biggest thing is, is, is a pr protection from infection to the self. So the benefits are to the person as well as to the public. Because whilst you may not necessarily get severe illness uh, because you happen to be in the younger age group, that is not always guaranteed. And there is a precedent for this whereby we have an annual seasonal influenza vaccine program for exactly those reasons. We immunize our children extensively so that they are protected, school business continues, and they don't generate extra cases in the community with their parents and elderly grandparents. OK, you've made the case very clearly and very passionately. Roland, you're back with us. Uh, you've heard the argument for but you're still, I think, a little sceptical about this. I certainly do have reservations. I hope you can hear me better now, Nigel. Um, Clear as a bell, yes. That's, I, I, I put my tie on specially as I knew Barrett was appearing, and he's normally uh, so particularly well turned out, so I'm dismayed <laughs> to find he isn't wearing a tie today, but, uh, but never mind. I'm on holiday, um, Ronald. <laughs> but um, I, I think... We certainly know that the risks from COVID run very clearly with age. With each decade of age, your risk of dying or serious illness goes up five to tenfold. So there's very little direct benefit from protecting younger children against um, infection with COVID. They're unlikely to get seriously ill. Uh, the frequency with which they get um, long COVID is about, um, I suppose, a half to a third of, of, of frequency with which adults get it. And um, I think we have to be clear that long COVID in many ways is not a unique phenomenon. You see similar post-viral syndromes with other respiratory diseases that we normally tolerate in the education setting. The other trouble that I have with vaccinating, and Barrett has um, highlighted the precedent of giving influenza vaccine to children, um, but there's another precedent that I might bring up, which is that of chickenpox. We don't give chickenpox vaccination to children because we know very well that it's better to get chickenpox when you're younger, when you're much more likely to have a mild disease than when you get into your 20s, 30s, 40s, when you can get a severe disease and pneumonia. We're in a similar position here is what I'm worried about with COVID. If we give it to four year olds, we may find by the time they get to 64 or 54, when they really will be at risk of serious complications, their immunity will have waned. One thing we do know from the studies that have been thus done thus far is that, as with most, uh, most infections, natural infection does seem to produce a more enduring immunity, uh, certainly when combined with vaccination than vaccination okay. alone. That's been okay. reported from a few parts of the world. So I, therefore, am very wary about extensive and global vaccination of children. So, Barrett, the final word to you on this. 
You know, Roland makes the point that actually catching COVID for young people, developing their own immunity, is likely to last them pretty much a lifetime, whereas a jab may well not. Well, uh, whilst I agree totally with respect to the chickenpox scenario, with respect to SARS-CoV-2, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and the uh, other nations, who have also got eminent scientists, United States, Canada, Israel, Netherlands, France, New Zealand, Israel, uh, so on, Ireland, are all implementing a vaccine program for 12-year-olds and above. And I personally think that is a move in the right direction to prevent, to protect, and I don't think that there is a chickenpox-like situation here with SARS-CoV-2 in immunising young children. OK, thank you, gentlemen, both. Well, both folks, well. two sides of an argument there about whether we should or should not be vaccinating 16 and 17-year-olds. I think what is certain um, is that it's going to happen and that we're all, those of us that are double-jabbed, going to be encouraged to have a third jab and we'll then be told we really absolutely must have the winter flu vaccine and it goes on and on. Now, some quite dramatic tensions in the Gulf over the course of the last couple of days. One British national killed by an Iranian strike. Um, and it's a funny one, this, because we have Joe Biden. We have the Johnson government. We have also, of course, the European Union. Believers that this Iranian regime can be contained, and that doing deals with them is the right way forward. Uh, but I have to say that the Chief of General Staff, uh, General Senate Carter, uh, has said something quite different today. We're going to talk in a moment about Iran. Can we do a deal with Iran, or frankly, are they just the outright enemy? Well, the Iranian regime have been in place for 40 years. They are a brutal and barbaric regime. In a moment, we will talk about whether they are friend or foe and whether we can do a deal with them. But first, I've been asking you about the number of migrants crossing the English Channel. It's due to go through the 10,000 figure uh, at some point this evening when we get the official figures. And I'm asking you the question, do you think there is a solution? Because I certainly do. But let's see what you think. Um, on Twitter, I get, they are welcome here. The UK is better with migrants. Well, surely, majority opinion would suggest, big majority opinion would suggest, that we need to control who is coming into our country and that only by doing that uh, do we reduce ourselves from potential cost and potential risks. Nick says, the only solution is to properly police the channel. Turn them back to French waters. The French have no intention of stopping the flow of young men crossing. Well, we do keep giving the French money, uh, another 54 million a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the French today have claimed that they did actually turn round 34 migrants who were in trouble and take them back. What they're supposed to do is to stop the boats from launching from the beaches, and the British money is designed to pay for the gendarmerie to stop the launches. Uh, I had a debate about this with the MP for Calais a couple of weeks back. He said it's almost impossible to police a long section of coast when people are launching during the night. And I countered by saying most of the boats that launch now do so in broad daylight. So I still have this slightly cynical feeling uh, that, in fact, they're quite happy 
in many cases, just to pass the problem on. And if the French were trying to stop it, why does the French Navy escort a high percentage of those boats, literally escort them into British waters? Ron says to me on Twitter, jail sentence for illegal entry, deportation on release, no dole, no medical treatment, no reason to come here. Ron... You know, you're obviously even tougher than the language Pretty Patel uses. None of that is actually going to work. We haven't got any prison spaces. The prisons are full. And the idea that if you had people in this country detained, that you wouldn't give them any access to medicine if they were seriously ill, I mean, frankly, that would be wrong. We, we, we would really reduce ourselves to be the most awful place if we treated people like that. It isn't going to happen. Graham says, provide a less hazardous route for potential asylum applicants to travel to the UK. Timely assessment of applications, ha-ha, and a means to repatriate those who are unsuccessful. Well, here's the problem. Repatriating people is really, really hard, and why? Because we're still part of the European Convention on Human Rights, and every time we try and do this, we have what Boris himself calls lefty lawyers that try and stop this from happening. Anne says, send in the Navy to deter them entering our waters. Well, you know, but you know, you're talking about a 50-mile stretch. I mean, the Navy can't simply patrol all of it anyway. Much of our Navy is out in the Far East at the moment. The only solution to this, I've said it before, and I'm going to go on saying it, the only solution to this is to do what the Australian PM, Tony Abbott, did a decade ago when they faced exactly the same situation. Boats coming from Indonesia, larger boats, more people on them, but exactly the same principle. And the Australian Navy took those boats under tow, took them back to Indonesia, made it clear that nobody that entered Australia via that route would ever be allowed to claim refugee status. And a funny thing happened when Abbott did that. The boats stopped coming. Now, there is an argument, and I understand it, there is an argument for people to apply for genuine refugee status and to do that somewhere offshore. I do understand that argument, and we as a country over centuries have been generous, far more generous than any of our European neighbours, generous to those who are real refugees. Uh, but frankly, we should not be generous to those who are coming into Britain through a safe country. As I said, 90% of them are men, and actually very few would genuinely qualify for refugee status. On to Iran. Now, as I said earlier, the regime has been there for 40 years. It is brutal, it is barbaric, it is awful. And yet, there were many that thought, and this started with Obama, really, um, and the British government, and the European Union, that we could do a deal with Iran. It's called the Iran Nuclear Deal, and if we did this... Uh, the Iranians would be really good people uh, and they would behave. Uh, many of us thought all we were actually doing was effectively enriching Iran and that they've used much of that money to spread their network of terror across much of the region. And Donald Trump, when he was president of the USA, broke the Iran nuclear deal, but now it's all back on. Now, we've had some incidents that have taken place, some naval incidents that have taken place, incidents to shipping in the Gulf in the last couple of days. And speaking earlier today, the head of the armed forces, General Sunit Carter, said Iran made a big mistake with the attack that they did against Mercer Street vessel last week because, of course, that has very much internationalised the state of play in the Gulf. Uh, so quite strong words, you know, coming out uh, from Nick Carter. I'm joined now 
by the former Director General of the Ministry of Defence, Rear Admiral Chris Parry. Chris, um, can you just explain to our viewers the two incidents that have taken place in the Gulf in the last few days? Yes, uh, good, evening. Um, good evening. Well, we've had a, a drone attack uh, on a ship, uh, which has killed two people, unfortunately. And we've also had uh, a manned assault on another tanker off Bujara. Uh, in fact, the people who assaulted that tanker left pretty quickly when uh, foreign warships arrived to deal with the situation. Um, but taken together, they're, they're typical of a pattern that we've had over the last couple of years, where the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps have uh, seen a reason to actually get involved in these sort of things. Yeah, and I mean, we thought we could contain Iran, didn't we? I mean, the whole purpose of the Iran nuclear deal, the whole purpose of America, the European Union, the UK coming together, was to try and work with Iran. Is it, I mean, clearly, clearly Nick Carter uh, has reached the end of his tether with all of this. Do you think, Chris Parry, that it's possible to work with Iran? I've never thought it's been possible to work with Iran. Um, I'm one of those people that I suppose is on the hawkish side. Uh, every aspect of Iran's political behaviour leads you to believe they don't intend to be a responsible uh, country in the world. Um, they, uh, they want to dominate the greater Middle East. There's a confessional issue associated with the bulk of um, Iran being Shia Muslim against the Sunnis which uh, surround them. Uh, and as you know, they support Hezbollah, Hamas, all the insurrectional movements in and around the greater Middle East. They are not a responsible member of the international community. Uh, they've had sanctions imposed on them, but I'm afraid to say that not every country has actually enforced those, notably China. And I think people underestimate the links that have existed ever since the 1980s between China and Iran. Uh, China gets quite a lot of its uh, gas from Iran, most of the white goods and consumer products that Iran has come from China. Uh, and people underestimate how the extent to which uh, uh, China has Iran's back. So attacks in the Gulf, hijackings in the Gulf, uh, clearly Iran flexing their muscles. What do we do? Do we make sure there's a naval detachment there? What do we do to try and protect shipping in that vital part of the world? Nigel, I think what we have to realise is that we're between two regimes in Iran at the moment. Uh, Hassan Rouhani was the uh, president. It's now Ibrahim Raisi coming in. Uh, and what we have to do is see that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps is a state within a state. Uh, and they are flexing their muscles. They're trying to show the new regime that they're really hard and they, they can do lots of stuff. But unless we see uh, the difference between what the state does and what the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps do, uh, we won't actually get the right solutions. Every time they want to get their regime's attention, the IRGC do something like this. They attach limpet mines to ships, they shoot down American drones, they capture British ships. Uh, they're trying to get attention. They're trying to say, look, we have political and commercial interests within Iran. And part of this is actually to advance their commercial interests. They're heavily invested in offshore and onshore energy. So think of them really as organized crime. That's how they're operating. This is, these are the Don Corleones of uh, the greater Middle East. And the IRGC, which was set up to help veterans of the Iran-Iraq war, has actually morphed into a vast enterprise at the heart of the Iranian regime. And they essentially say, you better behave yourself, otherwise you're going to see trouble from us. So what we do is we isolate the IRGC with sanctions uh, and, and other things, and we obviously look out for any aggressive attempt from them in order to suppress that 
and uh, basically separate them from well, what the Iranians are doing. At the top that, level, we say to the Iranians, if you want, to, if you want to, to be treated better, you've got to act better as a responsible partner and deal with the IRGC. OK, Chris, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And for that to happen, it's going to need the Americans, the EU and the British to sit down and change their position. Now, my what the Farage moment is this, as you well know, I have said that I don't think the RNLI should routinely be going into the channel to do the job of border force, as they have been once again today. And I said the whole operation now looks like a taxi service. This led to some pretty strong attacks on me. Um, and it was all spin. It was PR spin that, you know, people working on lifeboats were getting abused. Well, that happened at Tower Hill on a Friday night, nothing to do with the migrant crisis. And they also had some fun saying how much money had been raised on the back um, of my comments. I never attacked the RNLI crews. I know many of them. I've raised money for the organisation. Uh, but I know there are some real tensions going on in those communities and many in those crews who can't afford to go on. But I'm afraid I had a lot of attacks on this and from the RNLI too. So I have written a piece today. It's gone up on the Daily Telegraph online. And I've made this point that the RNLI has become increasingly politicised, spending money buying burkinis for women in Africa, funding creches in Bangladesh, getting in all sorts of projects all around the world that, that I'm sure their donors who put money in the boxes had no idea uh, they were getting involved in. They've become very political in this country too. Uh, messages that have gone to RNLI crews on the anniversary of George Floyd's death. Uh, the flying of the rainbow flag at some of their stations. Now, you may approve of all of these things, but the point is they are all political gestures from an organisation that has no need to be political at all. And because I made these comments about the RNLI, we've had the rejoin the EU and all the hard left are the ones saying, we must crowdfund, we must help, we must buy a new lifeboat and name it after Farage and all the rest of it. Well, even if £200,000 has been raised since this so-called row began, it doesn't really help very much because the daily running cost is £440,000. But here is the shock. Having come under attack for this, I thought I'd look, I thought I'd look a bit deeper into the RNLI. Have a look uh, at their political activities. Uh, have a look at the, their new friends uh, that they've got on the left. And I predict they're going to be fair-weather friends. And I'll tell you why. Because Sir William Hillary, who founded the RNLI, uh, was the inheritor of a slave plantation in the West Indies. Yes, that's where his money came from. And one of his big early donors, George Hibbert, wasn't just somebody who made a lot of money out of slavery, but campaigned in Parliament against the abolition of slavery. You see, if you get involved in this woke cancel culture stuff, it can come back to bite you. And I think that the moral of the story is people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Now, we did invite the RNLI on uh, to have a discussion with me about this, but they declined. But they did say, our charity exists to save lives at sea. Our mission is to save everyone. We remain focused on our core purpose. Well, let's very much hope they do. Coming up on Talking Pints, I'll be with Laura Dodsworth, who's made a book and she's sold huge numbers of copies. But first, let's see what's coming up at 8 o'clock on Colin Brazier's show.
He awarded himself the Victoria Cross and fed his political rivals to crocodiles. Today is also the anniversary of Idi Amin's announcement in 1972 that Asians must leave Uganda for Britain. How have they got on since? Also, why is Russia holding out against a new Geneva Convention that stops robot soldiers from killing humans? And Meghan Markle at 40, she's just released a video promising to serve others. We introduce you to another celebrity who goes about exactly that without any expectation of publicity or thanks. That's with me, Colin Brazier, from 8. Well, one thing since lockdown began that has really surprised me is the level of compliance. Yes, of course, there are some people out protesting, some people who treated the rules with utter contempt from the very beginning, but actually a lot of us have been complying with the rules. And still, there seem to be quite a few people out there very, very frightened of this virus. I've been wondering why. Well, somebody that's been working hard on this is Laura Dodsworth, and she's written a book called A State of Fear. And this book is a bestseller. It's done phenomenally well. And Laura joins me now on Talking Pints. Cheers and welcome to GP News. Yes, I think I'll toast with my goldfish bowl of wine. <laughs> Laura, I have to tell you that until this book came out and people started to talk about it or rave about it or um, be appalled by it, um, because it has provoked a lot of opinions... You know, I didn't really know who you were. So tell us first, who is Laura Dodsworth before this incarnation as a bestseller? Well, I'll forgive you for not having heard of me. It's no, I hadn't. I'm being honest. No, it's fine. It's my first uh, political polemical book. I, right. I didn't know I had one in me, but this is mm. what lockdown and a barrage of behavioural science and fear messaging has done to me. Um, so I'm a writer and a photographer and a couple of films under my belt too. And I'm probably better known for my other books, which are about the body, which in a similar way to A State of Fear explore issues of taboos and what makes us who we are. But they're more about the politics of power, shame, sexuality and gender. And this is about the politics of fear. So behavioural psychology, this is in the number 10... Uh, Downing Street bunker. I mean, they were worried, weren't they? They were worried at the beginning of this. Here was a, a virus we knew very little about. Mm. We didn't know how to treat it. We were seeing some pretty shocking scenes from Milan and northern Italy, and the decision was taken to lock down until perhaps we could find some way of dealing with it. And I, I kind of get that. I understand why they did it. Yeah. They, they were very, very scared. And as I say, those, those scenes from Milan were quite shocking, I think. You know, people lying in hospital corridors and, and, and the system unable to cope. So that's why they had to try and find a way of making people comply. Mm. And is that where the fear messaging began? Uh, that's where it begins. Now, you talk about the fear, basically, that our rulers felt. And I, I mm. have never been surprised mm. that they've used fear to encourage compliance when they themselves felt fear. And in an epidemic, fear, fear is completely natural. The problem with fear is when it's deliberately amplified or when it's not calibrated to the scale of the threat. Now, you say that there were scary images from, from Milan, of mm. course, from, from Wuhan, and China had modelled lockdown. Um, the first time the world's ever done a lockdown is China, because my book isn't about lockdown, so I don't want to get too caught up in it, but it's impossible to talk about the behavioural science approach to 
make people comply with lockdown without talking about it. And it's important to understand that lockdown was never on any pandemic plans before. And an epidemic and a coronavirus epidemic were very high up on the national risk register and there was never a plan to lock down. As Neil Ferguson said in a quite extraordinary interview with The Times, they thought, we couldn't do that, could we? And then we thought, yes, we well, can, because well. they did it in Italy. So we import this totalitarian, brand new tool. And political leaders thought, how will we get people to comply? The reason we know we th they thought like this is because of the minutes of a spy bee meeting. That's the scientific pandemic influenza group on behaviour. The question is, how do we make people follow the lockdown rules? There are various answers. There's a suite of options. And one is to raise people's sense of personal threat, because people understood that they weren't at risk in their demographic and they wanted everybody to feel at risk to comply with the rules. And they succeeded with this, did they? They did succeed with it. I mean, we know in May, for instance, that three quarters of people were too scared to go to hospital in case they caught COVID. So, um, I mean, one of the tenets of my book is that fear creates collateral damage. It creates harms in itself. Mm. And we can see now the knock-on effects in waiting lists, in... Um, late treatment for oncology and heart disease, that people being scared to go to hospital because the, th the threat and the fear well, being amplified yeah. causes collateral damage. But equally, the hospitals weren't fully operational for other procedures and we're 5.3 mm. million operations behind. We have, you know, waiting... I mean, I, I completely understand what you're saying, that it may well be that longer term uh, there is more death uh, through a lack of diagnosis or missed operations than there will ever be with COVID-19 written on the death certificate. I do understand that fully. Mm. But how specifically did they scare people? What did they do? What, what, and you're right, people were scared, because I've been astonished by some of the opinion polls through all of this. Yeah. You, know, you know, showing whatever the government did, however authoritarian it may have looked to you, when they polled people, mm. it did seem that quite consistent majorities thought the government was right to take this action. Mm. What, what techniques specifically did they use mm. to put fear into people's minds? Yeah, approval ratings for the government have never been higher as they were on the 23rd of March when we, when we went into a lockdown. And Unbelievable. Yeah, well, it's actually not because um, fear inducements are quite well understood and people do turn to authoritarian government during epidemics and specifically when there's a crisis and when they're frightened. This isn't, this isn't unheard of. Um, yes, yeah, so, so, so time of war... You, you, you want to believe in the government and support the government, yeah. and similarly with, with sort of time of plague or yeah. the in modern equivalent. Interestingly, approval ratings and Boris Johnson's popularity are plummeting now. I think people probably want to get back to normal. But you can see that people were still very frightened in the lead up to the 19th of July, the supposed Freedom Day, mm. on the day that vaccine man uh, passports were announced. You know, uh, yeah, freedom. So-called Freedom Day. <laughs> um, but the, the anxiety was really palpable among commentators and, you know, there were polls about it and in the media. Mm. So the tools they used, um, the most egregious behavioural science tools are these fear and shaming and norming. So you can see that in, in a variety of tactics. There's lots of advertising. We've spent um, a fortune on, oh, on advertising. Newspaper ads, radio ads, yeah, yeah, I mean, everywhere. Yeah. yeah, television, everything. And some of those ads were designed to put the, you know, put the, scare the living daylights out mm. of you. And, you know, you could argue that that's, that's right and good because we're in an epidemic. But what they did was democratise the risk. They... Um, conveyed the idea that everybody was equally at risk, which wasn't true. There's um, a huge 
difference in your risk, whether you're young or old. It's a very age-stratified disease. Can you look into his eyes or whatever it was well, they that's, used? Yeah, that's one of, him, one of them. Um, look him in the eyes and tell him you never bend yeah, the rules. Yeah. So an ad like that is designed to frighten you. It's very close up, very grainy, mm -hmm. kind of horror film-esque. I'm easily frightened. Other people might not think it's <laughs> like a horror film. Well, it looks like the British um, public were. Yeah, but it, what it also does is encourage a bit of finger-pointing. You know, if COVID's spreading, it's because you've broken the rules. Mm. And what that does is deflect, as well, away from politicians and policies and institutions. Oh. And at the time that that would have been conceived and executed, we know Matt Hancock was having an affair. He wasn't too scared himself. Um, <laughs> oh, also, <laughs> oh. Just had to drop that That's one quite in. political. But yeah. yeah. Um, well, also the use of... Um, Stats, so cherry-picking the worst figures, floating the big numbers up to the top. There's been a lot of modelling. There's been a lot of modelling in this yeah, pandemic. I mean, and presentation of worst-case scenarios. And, and Neil Ferguson has a bit of a track record in modelling and, and perhaps over-exaggerating. I think we go right back, don't we, to sort of CJD 20 years ago and, and, and predictions of what that might lead to, which mercifully it didn't. But why have the British public been so compliant? Is, is, is that just in our nature? Are we, are we a very law-abiding country? I don't know. I'd be interested in more cross-cultural anthropological studies on that. I honestly can't speak authoritatively on it. But I would say that I think in our country we had a very organised behavioural science approach. So one act... And generally the reaction to the book's been tremendous. But one accusation that was levelled at me was that it's a conspiracy theory that the government leveraged fear. This is a little naive. Whatever you think of the politicians, our behavioural science team are very well established. We have behavioural scientists in every government department, mm -hmm. in all the agencies that work for the government, there's the behavioural insights team, and then we have a, um, a team of advisors, uh, social scientists and psychologists on SPY-B. We actually export behavioural science all around the world. We're very good at it. So I suspect if we were very compliant, it's because we had maybe the most barrage of, of fear-mongering in the world. We were one of the most frightened countries in the mm. world. But they were doing it to protect us. You can argue there's a net benefit. You can. And I think that's a debate that should be had. I mean, if you read the book, my colours are nailed quite firmly to the mast. I think the use of fear is at best morally dubious. Mm -hmm. If psychologists wanted to make you frightened in a lab you would have to sign a consent form. I mean, actually, it'd be really hard to get the ethics approval for it, but you'd have to consent. <laughs> and they would not let you leave the lab until you were in at least as good a state as you arrived. You know, you'd be watching a rom-com and having a slice of chocolate cake before you leave the lab. Mm. There's no rom-com or chocolate cake for us right now, is there? It's one variant after another. Even in the last week, there was a headline that um, new potential new COVID variant means that one in three Brits might de die from the latest modelling. Well, another alternative mm. is that the latest variant might be like the common cold, which is in the whole paper, but it's the scary headline. Yeah, no, no, no. no. I'm which, like, I understand which that. sticks so, and makes the news. So, Laura, given the passion you feel about this, have you been part of the anti-lockdown protests? I have not been part of them, no. but I've covered three for the media. Right. Um, which I think is very important. I th there's been, um, I mean, they've been very big protests on what I perceived when I have been... At but the led protests. by people like Piers Corbyn. I think some have been. They're not particularly credible people. Do you know what I think? I well, think far from it, actually. I don't think they're very led. I think it's a coalition of lots of grassroots people. I saw a massive variety of placards, lots of different mm. types of people. Mm. They're in some kind of, like fringe, hippie, crusty people, yeah, the anti-vaxxers yeah. you'd expect, but also yeah. families, elderly people, all different... And have you had the vaccine? 
Um, I have a different... I have a medical situation. I'm quite surprised you've asked me, because here we... Well, I, this is a weird situation where we're asked to discuss a very private... Well, you haven't got to answer it, but, I, but I'm interested. I'm interested to know. I have um, a medical contraindication for the vaccine, but I have had a variety of vaccines. Okay. But this one causes problems with allergies, which makes it difficult okay. for some people. Um, the question of the vaccine passport is something that's easier for me to discuss. Um, at the moment, the government's using the vaccine passport, it seems, as a tool to encourage uptake. Oh, yeah, they're the bullying vaccine. the young and you can't go to nightclubs and all the rest of it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've heard politicians being quite open about that now, but also one of the, one of the godfathers of Nudge, um, Richard Thaler, was talking about this. Um, he and Cass Sunstein wrote, wrote the book on Nudge, it's called Nudge, and Cass Sunstein heads up the World Health Organization's Pavel Insights team, and he was saying that, you know, this is good, Vaccine passports and workplace restrictions will make people it. have the vaccine. Uh, so the vaccine yeah. passport is another yeah. behavioural science tool yeah. to encourage people yeah. to have the vaccine. No, no I'm, I'm completely against vaccine passports, I can promise you. And this is your first foray into this sort of public space. What next? Um, well, I was actually starting to write a different book last year when lockdown put the... Um, kind of wiped that off the table. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking to my publisher at that, about that book, I discussed an idea for an article I had about the weaponization of fear, and they diverted me into this. So I think I'm going to go back to right. my, my <laughs> idea that I had on the table well, last year. Now we're back out in the real world again. Well, whether people agree with you or disagree with you, with this book, you've certainly made a mark. And Laura Dodsworth, I think, is a name we may well be hearing again. Thank you. Well, as we come, we come to the end of the show and it's time for Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions. And as you know, I don't get previous side of them. I really don't. So here we go. Neil asks, is it right that fully vaccinated people have to provide expensive COVID tests to re-enter the UK when they have been fully jabbed? Is this creating a two-tier travel system? One for the rich and no travel for the poorer. Yes, that is absolutely what it's doing. Because even though you've been double jabbed, you've got to get a test before you fly in. You've got to get a test on day two and a test on day eight. You have an option to go and pay for another test on day five for early release. And if, you know, a family of four want to go away on a foreign holiday, it's going to cost them several hundred pounds just in tests. That's where we are. Angus asks, with the SNP and Scottish Greens about to sign a pact would giving England its own government and making Westminster elections proportionately representative quash nationalist arguments that Westminster is solely focused on English affairs. If we had proportionality in Westminster, I think you'd find that the English MPs would dominate votes much more than we do today. After all, the English population is 87% of the United Kingdom, something people just don't register. Um, and look... You know, the SNP, the Greens, they can do what they want. Um, I still believe that in the final analysis, when it comes to a referendum on whether the Scots will actually separate from the United Kingdom, I don't think it's going to happen. Camilla asks me, if you could choose anyone who'd make a better Prime Minister, make a better prime minister today than, than Boris Johnson. Uh, well, the fellow we had on last night might be knocking on a bit, uh, but I tell you what, actually, I think David Davis might do a better job. Who knows? Anyway, that's me done. 
Coming up next, it's Colin Brazier in for Andrew Neil. First, though, the vital weather.